Chapter 2 of A Book of English Martyrs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Curran. A Book of English Martyrs by E. M. Wilmot Buxton. Chapter 2 Joyful Tribulations of Blessed Thomas More. Part 1 if love be strong hot mighty and fervent then may no trouble grief or sorrow fall but that the lover would be well content all to endure and think it eke too small though it were death so he might therewithal the joyful presence of that person get on whom he hath his heart and love he set sir thomas more on that same fourth of may when the Carthusians and their fellow martyrs were leaving the tower for Tyburn, a grey-haired prisoner with a singularly bright and cheery expression upon his worn face looked down upon them from the Beauchamp Tower and said to his daughter, as she pressed close to him with a shudder at the sight, Lo, dost thou not see, Meg, that these blessed fathers be now as cheerfully going to their deaths as bridegrooms to their marriage? See then, mine own dear daughter, the great difference there is between such as have spent their days in a narrow and penitential life for their religion and such as have in the world as thy poor father hath done spent their days in ease and pleasure for god considering their long lives of penance speedily taketh them hence to the joy of heaven whereas he leaveth thy father meg thinking him not worthy to come to that blessedness leaveth him here to be plagued and turmoiled with misery. The words were those of a truly brave and humble spirit that shrank not at all from death, seeing that this was but the means of uniting him to the divine friend whose lifelong lover he had been. Two months later Sir Thomas More, late Chancellor of England, had himself joined the tiny band of English martyrs that was to increase so fast in the days to come. From his earliest childhood, Sir Thomas More had shown himself one of those happy souls that are so full of divine grace that everything to them is a cause of joy and merriment. The story goes that as a babe his nurse was carrying him on horseback across a river, when, just as they reached the opposite bank, the animal slipped and lost its balance. The frightened nurse flung the child as far as she could towards the shore, and held on to the saddle herself until the horse had floundered into a place of safety. But when she ran in terror to seek the babe, she found him lying on his back in a ditch, laughing and chuckling to himself with glee. It was in the same happy spirit of humor that he was to meet all the adventures of his future life. He was born at Milk Street in the city of London in the year 1478, and was educated at St. Anthony's School in Threadneedle Street, close to where the Bank of England now stands. St. Anthony's was a free grammar school, where he received an excellent grounding in Latin from one of the few born schoolmasters of that time. It was the custom in those days to send promising boys, the sons of gentlemen or of nobles, to serve as pages in the houses of great ecclesiastics. And accordingly, young Moore was sent, when he was thirteen years old, to the household of Cardinal Morton, Archbishop of Canterbury, and Lord Chancellor of England. There his bright face and ready wit soon made him a favorite. The Cardinal, usually a somewhat severe personage, 
would watch with a twinkling eye how the boy threw himself into the breach when an actor in one of the Christmas mumming plays fell out, and how he took the part without previous preparation, so that he made the lookers-on more sport than the players themselves. And more than once, as he stood behind his master's chair or poured the wine for some distinguished guest, the cardinal would murmur to his neighbor confidentially, "'That child here waiting at the table, whoever shall live to see it, will prove a marvelous man.' At the age of fourteen, through Cardinal Morton's interest, Thomas More was placed at Canterbury College, Oxford, the future Christ Church or Cardinal's College. His father had a large family and no money to spare, so the life of the young foundation scholar was not too easy. In afterlife, he spoke gratefully of his training in this respect. It was thus, he says, that I indulged in no vice or pleasure, and spent my time in no vain or hurtful amusements. I did not know what luxury meant, and never learned to use money badly. In a word, I loved and thought of nothing but my studies. It was probably during this period of plain living and high thinking that he found time to study, besides Latin and Greek, French, music, arithmetic, geometry, and history. When he was eighteen years of age, he entered upon his career as a barrister, becoming a student at Lincoln's Inn and there, while engaged in the study of law, his mind was still occupied more fully by considerations as to whether he were not called to the higher path of the secular priest or the monk. For some years he lived near the Carthusians of the Charter House, frequenting daily their spiritual exercises, but without any vow, and though it was made clear to him in time that his vocation was to marry and bring up his children in fear of the Lord, it was no dread of the austerity of the religious life that withheld him. His great-grandson tells us that he oftentimes used to wear a sharp shirt of hair next to his skin, which he never left off wholly. No, not when he was the Lord Chancellor of England, which my grandmother, on a time in the heat of the summer spying, laughed at, not knowing wherein the true wisdom of a Christian man consisteth. He added also to this austerity a discipline every Friday and high fasting days, thinking that such cheer was the best he could bestow on his rebellious body. He used also much fasting and watching, lying often either upon the bare ground or upon some bench, or lying some log under his head. And with all this he was ever one of the merriest and most cheerful of men. While he was a student, more than just of age, made the acquaintance of the great Greek scholar Erasmus, and the two became close friends. Their letters give charming evidence of their mutual affection and appreciation of each other. Did nature ever frame a sweeter, happier character than that of Moore? asks Erasmus, writing to a mutual acquaintance. And in another letter, he gives an interesting glimpse of the royal family, and especially of the young Prince Henry, who was to play such an important part in the life of his most delightful friend. Says he, I once composed a heroic poem in praise of Henry the Seventh and of his children on this wise. Thomas More, who, while I was staying in a country house had paid me a visit, took me out for a walk to a neighboring village. There all the king's children except Arthur the eldest were being educated. When we reached the hall, all his attendants were assembled, and in the midst stood Henry, then nine years old, yet already with a royal bearing, 
betokening a certain loftiness of mind joined with a singular condescension. At his right was Margaret, about eleven years old. She afterwards married James, King of the Scots. At his left, in play, was Mary, four years old. Edmund, an infant, was carried by the nurse. Moore, after saluting Prince Henry, presented him with something he had written. As I was entirely taken by surprise, I had nothing to offer, and I was obliged to promise to write something to show my respect. I was somewhat vexed with Moore for not warning me, and especially so since the prince, while we were dining, sent me a note asking some fruit of my pen. So I went home, and in spite of the muses from whom I had long been separated, I finished my poem within three days. This, then, was the first encounter between Moore and the future king, who was to become his intimate friend, and thirty-six years later was to sign his death warrant. Another of Moore's friends was the learned Colette, the future founder of St. Paul's School, and one of our great reformers of education. Colette became Moore's confessor, and to him we find the latter writing in such affectionate terms as these. What can be more distressing to me than to be deprived of your most dear society, after being guided by your wise counsels, cheered by your charming familiarity, assured by your earnest sermons, and helped forward by your example, so that I used to obey your every look and nod. So the years passed quickly by, enlivened by the society of clever and witty scholars such as these, until in the year 1505, Moore took to himself one closer still. His dear little wife, as he calls her in his own epitaph, composed some twenty years later. She gave him four children, Margaret, Elizabeth, Cecily, John, and after six years of happy married life, she died. Her husband, who had made her such, says Erasmus quaintly, that he would willingly have passed his whole life with her, doubtless had her in mind when he wrote the lines, Far from her lips' soft door, be noise, be silence stern, and hers be learning's store, or hers the power to learn. His four young children called urgently for a mother's care, and within a very short time Thomas Moore married a worthy soul seven years his elder, who, while she probably never understood in any way the depth and religious feeling of her husband's character, made him a good, sensible wife and his children an excellent stepmother. Just before his first marriage, Moore had fallen into disgrace with King Henry the Seventh for opposing his unlawful exactions in the way of money. This seemed a bad beginning for the young lawyer, who had recently taken his seat as Member of Parliament. But a year before his second marriage, the death of the old king placed Henry the Eighth upon the throne. This handsome young prince, full of zeal for learning and religion, had not forgotten his old acquaintance, Sir Thomas More, who soon became a leading light in his profession and under-sheriff for London. It was now that he moved from his home in Walbrook to Crosby Place in Bishopsgate Street without, the hall of which still remains, and has recently been moved bodily to Chelsea. Here his children began to grow up, until Margaret, the eldest, was about eighteen, when the whole family moved to the beautiful house in Chelsea he had built for himself, a house commodious rather than magnificent, 
in the midst of a large garden stretching a hundred yards to the river's edge. Chelsea was in those days a little country village, some way from London town, and generally approached by the river Thames, then a pleasant stream bordered by gardens and palaces. Here he wrote his famous Utopia, setting forth his ideas as to government and education, and meantime put them to some extent into practice by experimenting upon his household, which by this time had reached a considerable size. There were, of course, his own four children, of whom John, the youngest, would be thirteen when the move was made to Chelsea. There were also William Roper, the young husband of his daughter Margaret, who had married at the age of sixteen, and his stepdaughter Alice Middleton, with her husband, also quite young people. Probably a lad named Giles Heron, a ward of Moore, and later on the husband of Cecily Moore, made an eighth inmate. And Margaret Giggs, an orphan relation, was one of his own daughters. There was also John Clements, student and tutor, who afterwards married this Margaret. John Harris, the secretary, Henry Patterson, the fool, for whom Moore had a particularly gentle and kindly affection, and a little later a poor gentlewoman named Paula, who had lost her all in a lawsuit. This then formed the whole school to whom Moore writes those delightful letters of which lack of space forbids more than a mention here. He reminds them how, on returning from his journeys, he has ever brought back some cake or fruit or piece of silk to deck them, how he has always given them plenty of kisses, and but very few strokes of the rod, the rod itself being only a bundle of peacock's feathers. But Margaret, wedded to her boy husband, whom Moore rescued from the snares of heresy, was his special darling, to whom he wrote on terms of the most tender affection, and for whom his heart was wrung to its depths on one dark morning when she lay apparently at death's door with the terrible sweating sickness of those days. Kneeling before the blessed sacrament in his private chapel, Sir Thomas, says Roper, there on his knees with tears, most devoutly besought Almighty God, that it would like his goodness, unto whom nothing is impossible, if it were his blessed will to vouchsafe graciously to hear his petition. His prayer was heard, and a remedy the doctors had not tried occurring to him, he used it with such effect that the girl recovered, as it was thought miraculously, says her husband, adding whom, if it had pleased God at that time to have taken to his mercy, her father said he would never have meddled in worldly matters more. If we remember the description given by Lady Jane Grey of her own childhood some few years later, of the harshness of her parents and the abundance of slaps and pinches that fell to the lot of the ordinary child in those days, we turn with relief to this peaceful picture at Chelsea. There we see the witty father, with his merry eyes and keen-edged tongue, quick to soften in sympathy and understanding with the clever, bright-eyed girls and boys, all eager to please him with their studies, and yet sure of an equally sympathetic interest in their play or their small troubles. I never saw him really angry but once, declares Margaret Giggs, and yet this was no easy-going indulgence. None of the children was ever allowed to be idle. Mistress Moore's sharp eyes saw that each had his or her appointed task about the house. Their father, 
when his official position prevented personal attention to the poor, would send some of his family to dispense his alms, especially to the sick and aged. In his parish of Chelsea he hired a house, in which he gathered many infirm, poor, and old people, and maintained them at his own expense. His daughter Margaret had the charge of this house when he was away. The training thus given to Margaret Giggs in charity bore noble fruit later on, when we find her ministering to some of our martyrs in Newgate before their death, at the risk of her own life. Their actual studies he superintended closely. Girls and boys alike wrote to him in Latin, and mealtimes were the scene of discussions in that language, sometimes deep, often merry, of some point raised in the daily reading. So charming and cultured a nature as Moore's was not suffered to hide itself within the borders of Chelsea. His son-in-law tells us that the king, upon holidays, when he had done his own devotions, used to send for him, and then sit and converse with him upon matters of astronomy, geometry, divinity, and sometimes of his worldly affairs. And because he was of a pleasant disposition, it pleased the king and queen, after the council had supped, yea, at the time of their supper, to send for him to be merry with them who, when he was perceived so much in his talk to delight that he could not in a month get leave to go home to be with his wife and children, whose company he most desired, he began thereupon somewhat to dissemble his nature, and so by little and little from his accustomed mirth to disuse himself, so that he was not so often sent for. This device, however, did not always save him from the royal importunities we hear that such entire favour did the king bear him that he made him chancellor of the duchy of lancaster and for the pleasure he took in his company would his grace suddenly sometimes come to his house at chelsea to be merry with him whither on a time unlooked for he came to dinner with him and after dinner in a fair garden of his walked with him by the space of an hour holding his arm about his neck such marks of royal favor did not deceive the clear-sighted chancellor even in those early days when henry was still outwardly at least a devout son of the church for when roper expressed his surprise and gratification that he should be thus honored sir thomas replied with a humorous look and a smile i thank the lord son that i find his grace my very good lord indeed and i believe he doth as singularly favor me as any subject within this realm. Howbeit, son Roper, I may tell thee, I have no cause to be proud thereof, for if my head would win him a castle in France, it should surely not fail to go. The words were a strange presage of what was to happen ten years later. One is tempted to dwell on these peaceful days among the happy, merry folk at Chelsea, watched over and fondly cherished, by the keen-witted cultivated father who in the midst of the world was accustomed to live the life of religious fervor and devotion of a monk but the clouds were already threatening to blot out the sunshine of that ideal home as the king's character deteriorated and his court degenerated into a circle of vicious and self-indulgent gamesters without a moral principle or a serious thought among them it was as he was on the point of starting for France with Wolsey, 
in order to bring about the Peace of Amiens in 1527, that More would first hear of the king's pretended scruples concerning his marriage with Queen Catherine. We know that he and the cardinal spent a night at the Bishop of Rochester's palace, when Wolsey did his best to bring over the holy John Fisher to the king's view. And we may safely conclude that Bishop Fisher was strengthened in his condemnation of it by the uprightness and sound principles of Sir Thomas More. Two years later, Wolsey's failure to secure the divorce for the master he had tried to serve better than his god had left him a ruined man, and the Chancellor's seal had been handed to More as his successor. Everyone, writes a contemporary, is delighted at his promotion because he is an upright and learned man and a good servant of the Queen. In accepting this office, More himself had no choice, but he made it perfectly clear that if offered as a bribe, it would certainly fail in its object. For on the occasion of his taking the Chancellor's oath in the Great Hall at Westminster, he said before the Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk, Considering how wise and honorable a prelate hath lately taken so great a fall, I have no cause to rejoice in my new dignity. And as the dukes have charged me, on the king's behalf, uprightly to administer justice without corruption or partiality, so do I likewise charge them, if they see me in anything to digress from my duty, not to fail to disclose it to his grace." I do not at all congratulate more or literature, wrote his old friend Erasmus when he heard of his elevation, but I do indeed congratulate England, for a better or holier judge could not have been appointed. The office of Lord Chancellor was held by Sir Thomas More for two and a half years, during which time the unhappy question of the divorce of the king came more and more to the front. It was a sad and difficult time for one in such high position, for though More kept himself apart from all such matters as far as possible while they were yet undecided, he never hesitated to assert his own strong principles when called upon to act or speak. We have seen already how it came about that Henry, finding the Catholic Church would never grant him permission to put away his lawful wife, determined to defy that church in the person of a representative, the Pope, and to be henceforth a law unto himself. In the May of 1532, we find the French ambassador Chapois writing thus, Parliament is discussing the prohibition of holding synods without express license of the king. This is a strange thing. Churchmen will be of less account than shoemakers, who have the power of assembling and making their own statutes. The king also wishes bishops not to have the power to arrest persons accused of heresy. The chancellor and the bishops oppose him. He is very angry, especially with the Chancellor, and is determined to carry the matter. On May 16, 1532, Sir Thomas More resigned the Great Seal into the King's own hands in the Garden of York Place near Westminster. The reason given was that he was not equal to the work, but the actual cause of his resignation was well known. The Chancellor has resigned, wrote a contemporary seeing that if he retained his office, he would be obliged to act against his conscience. Everyone is concerned, for there was never a better man in the office. The news was a great blow to his wife, 
who had never understood his high principles and uprightness of character. He told her of it in his own humorous fashion. It was the custom upon holy days, when his family attended the parish church of Chelsea, in the choir of which he was wont to sing, for one of his gentlemen-in-waiting to come to the door of his wife's pew when the mass was over and to say, "'Madam, my lord is gone.' On the next holy day, after he had given up the seal, he came himself to the pew, and with a low bow he said to her, "'Madam, my lord is gone.' "'Tilly Valley!' cried the lady. "'What mean you by your silly jest?' "'I mean,' said he, "'that Sir Thomas More is no longer Chancellor, "'having given up the great seal to the king.' "'The wrath of Dame Alice was overwhelming "'and probably enlivened all the walk home, "'though her husband, half rueful, half in fun, "'did his best to divert her attention to other subjects.' The loss of this office reduced Sir Thomas More to comparative poverty. The strictest economy took the place of the old system of lavish expenditure. In cold weather, he was compelled, for the lack of other fuel, every night before he went to bed, to cause a great bundle of fern to be brought into his chamber, and with the blaze thereof to warm himself, his wife, and his children, and so without any other fires to go to their beds. More bitter than cold or short rations of food, however, would be the necessary dispersion of his big family, his beloved school, and the pinpricks of tiresome and trivial charges that Henry was now at pains to bring against his once revered chancellor. In these it was easy enough to see the spiteful hand of Anne Boleyn, who clearly recognized him as the firm opponent of the only measures that could in any way justify her position as Henry's wife. Thus he was accused of accepting the bribe of a silver gilt cup from a lady in whose husband's favor he had pronounced a verdict. Called before the council, he was asked if this were so. Certainly the lady offered me the cup, said Moore though long after the decree was given, and I did accept it out of courtesy. At these words the Earl of Wiltshire, father of Anne Boleyn, exclaimed in glee, Aha! Did I not tell you, my lords, that you would find the matter true? And now, perhaps, my lord of Wiltshire would like to hear the end of the tale, suggested Moore quietly. When I had received the cup, I caused my butler to fill it with wine, drank to the lady, and made her pledge me again. I did then oblige her to receive back the cup once more, and to take it as a New Year's gift to her husband. This combination of courtesy and integrity was so absolutely characteristic of the late Chancellor that even his enemies were put to silence for a time. End of chapter 2, part 1